Continuation of Chapter 2, The Early Life of Christ Bethlehem Caesar Augustus, the master bookkeeper of the world, sat in his palace by the Tiber. Before him was stretched a map labeled Orbis Terrarum Imperium Romanum. He was about to issue an order for a census of the world, for all the nations of the civilized world were subject to Rome. There was only one capital in this world, Rome, only one official language, Latin, only one ruler, Caesar. To every outpost, to every satrap and governor, the order went out. Every Roman subject must be enrolled in his own city. On the fringe of the empire, in the little village of Nazareth, soldiers tacked up on walls the order for all the citizens to register in the towns of their family origins. Joseph the Builder, an obscure descendant of the great King David, was obliged by that very fact to register in Bethlehem, the city of David. In accordance with the edict, Mary and Joseph set out from the village of Nazareth for the village of Bethlehem, which lies about five miles on the other side of Jerusalem. Five hundred years earlier, the prophet Micah had prophesied concerning that little village, And thou, Bethlehem, of the land of Judah, art far from the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee will arise a leader who is to be the shepherd of my people Israel. Matthew 2, 6 Joseph was full of expectancy as he entered the city of his family, and was quite convinced that he would have no difficulty in finding lodgings for Mary, particularly on account of her condition. Joseph went from house to house only to find each one crowded. He searched in vain for a place where he, to whom heaven and earth belonged, might be born. Could it be that the Creator would not find a home in creation? Up a steep hill, Joseph climbed to a faint light which swung on a rope across a doorway. This would be the village inn. There, above all other places, he would surely find shelter. There was room in the inn for the soldiers of Rome who had brutally subjugated the Jewish people. There was room for the daughters of the rich merchants of the East. There was room for those clothed in soft garments who lived in the houses of the king. In fact, there was room for anyone who had a coin to give to the innkeeper but there was no room for him who came to be the inn of every homeless heart in the world. When finally the scrolls of history are completed down to the last words in time, the saddest line of all will be, there was no room in the inn. Out to the hillside to a stable cave, where shepherds sometimes drove their flocks in time of storm, Joseph and Mary went at last for shelter. There, in a place of peace, in the lonely abandonment of a cold, windswept cave, there, under the floor of the world, he who was born without a mother in heaven is born without a father on earth. Of every other child that is born into the world, friends can say that it resembles his mother. This was the first instance in time that anyone could say that the mother resembled the child. This is the beautiful paradox of the child who made his mother. The mother, too, was only a child. It was also the first time in the history of this world that anyone could ever think of heaven as being anywhere else than somewhere up there. When the child was in her arms, Mary now looked down to heaven. In the filthiest place in the world, a stable, purity was born. He who was later to be slaughtered by men acting as beasts was born among beasts. He who would call himself the living bread descended from heaven was laid in a manger, literally a place to eat. Centuries before, the Jews had worshipped the golden calf and the Greeks the ass. Men bowed down before them as before God. The ox and the ass now were present to make their innocent reparation, bowing down before their God. There was no room in the inn, but there was room in the stable. The inn is the gathering place of public opinion, the focal point of the world's moods, the rendezvous of the worldly, the rallying place of the popular and the successful. But the stable is a place for the outcasts, the ignored, the forgotten. The world might have expected the Son of God to be born, if he was to be born at all, in an inn. A stable would be the last place in the world where one would have looked for him. 
divinity is always where one least expects to find it. No worldly mind would ever have suspected that he who could make the sun warm the earth would one day have need of an ox and an ass to warm him with their breath. That he who, in the language of scriptures, could stop the turning about of Arcturus would have his birthplace dictated by an imperial census. That he who clothed the fields with grass would himself be naked. That he, from whose hands came planets and worlds, would one day have tiny arms that were not long enough to touch the huge heads of the cattle. That the feet which trod the everlasting hills would one day be too weak to walk. That the eternal word would be dumb. That omnipotence would be wrapped in swaddling clothes. That salvation would lie in a manger. That the bird which built the nest would be hatched therein. No one would ever have suspected that God coming to this earth would ever be so helpless. And that is precisely why so many miss him. Divinity is always where one least expects to find it. If the artist is at home in his studio because the paintings are the creation of his own mind, if the sculpture is at home among his statues because they are the work of his own hands, if the husbandman is at home among his vines because he planted them, and if the father is at home among his children because they are his own, then surely, argues the world, he who made the world should be at home in it. He should come into it as an artist into his studio, and as a father into his home. But for the Creator to come among his creatures and be ignored by them, for God to come among his own and not be received by his own, for God to be homeless at home, that could only mean one thing to the worldly mind. The babe could not have been God at all. And that is just why it missed him. Divinity is always where one least expects to find it. The Son of God made man was invited to enter his own world through a back door. Exiled from the earth, he was born under the earth, in a sense, the first caveman in recorded history. There he shook the earth to its very foundations. Because he was born in a cave, all who wish to see him must stoop. To stoop is the mark of humility. The proud refuse to stoop, and therefore they miss divinity. Those, however, who bend their egos and enter, find that they are not in a cave at all, but in a new universe where sits a babe on his mother's lap, and the world poised on his fingers. The manger and the cross thus stand at the two extremities of the Savior's life. He accepted the manger because there was no room at the inn. He accepted the cross because men said, We will not have this man for our king. Disowned upon entering, rejected upon leaving, he was laid in a stranger's stable at the beginning and a stranger's grave at the end. An ox and an ass surrounded his crib at Bethlehem. Two thieves were to flank his cross on Calvary. He was wrapped in swaddling bands in his birthplace. He was again laid in swaddling clothes in his tomb, clothes symbolic of the limitations imposed on his divinity when he took a human form. The shepherds watching their flocks nearby were told by the angels, This is the sign by which you are to know him. You will find a child still in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Luke 2.12 He was already bearing his cross, the only cross a babe could bear, a cross of poverty, exile, and limitation. His sacrificial intent already shone forth in the message the angels sang to the hills of Bethlehem. This day in the city of David a Savior has been born for you, the Lord Christ himself. Luke 2.11 Covetousness was already being challenged by his poverty, while pride was confronted with the humiliation of a stable. The swathing of divine power, which needs to accept no bounds, is often too great a tax upon minds which think only of power. They cannot grasp the idea of divine condescension, or of the rich man becoming poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. Men shall have no greater sign of divinity than the absence of power as they expect it, the spectacle of a babe who said he would come in the clouds of heaven, now being wrapped in the cloths of earth. He whom the angels called the Son of the Most High descended into the red dust from which we are all born, to be one with weak, fallen man in all things, save sin. And it is the swaddling clothes which constitute his sign. If he who is omnipotence had come with thunderbolts, there would have been no sign. There is no sign unless something happens contrary to nature. 
The brightness of the sun is no sign, but an eclipse is. He said that on the last day his coming would be heralded by signs in the sun, perhaps an extinction of light. At Bethlehem the divine sun went into an eclipse, so that only the humble of spirit might recognize him. Only two classes of people found the babe, the simple and the learned, those who knew that they knew nothing, and those who knew that they did not know everything. He is never seen by the man of one book, never by the man who thinks he knows. Not even God can tell the proud anything, only the humble can find God. As Carol Hauslander put it, Bethlehem is the inscape of Calvary, just as the snowflake is the inscape of the universe. This same idea was expressed by the poet who said that if he knew the flower in a crannied wall and all its details, he would know what God and man is. Scientists tell us that the atom comprehends within itself the mystery of the solar system. It was not so much that his birth cast a shadow on his life and thus led to his death, it was rather that the cross was there from the beginning, and it cast its shadow backward to his birth. Ordinary mortals go from the known to the unknown, submitting themselves to forces beyond their control. Hence we can speak of their tragedies. But he went from the known to the known, from the reason for his coming, namely to be Jesus or Savior, to the fulfillment of his coming, namely the death on the cross. Hence there was no tragedy in his life. For tragedy implies the unforeseeable, the uncontrollable, and the fatalistic. Modern life is tragic when there is spiritual darkness and unredeemable guilt. But for the Christ child there were no uncontrollable forces, no submission to fatalistic chains from which there could be no escape. But there was an inscape, the microcosmic manger summarizing like an atom the macrocosmic cross on Golgotha. In his first advent he took the name of Jesus or Savior. It will only be in his second advent that he will take the name of Judge. Jesus was not a name he had before he assumed a human nature, it properly refers to that which was united to his divinity, not that which existed from all eternity. Some say Jesus taught, as they would say Plato taught, never once thinking that his name means Savior from sin. Once he received this name, Calvary became completely a part of him. The shadow of the cross that fell on his cradle also covered his naming. This was his father's business. Everything else would be incidental to it. Prehistory, now history. The Word became flesh. The divine nature, which was pure and holy, entered as a renovating principle into the corrupted line of Adam's race, without being affected by corruption. Through the virgin birth, Jesus Christ became operative in human history, without being subject to the evil in it. And the Word was made flesh, and came to dwell among us, and we had sight of his glory, glory such as belongs to the Father's only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. Bethlehem became a link between heaven and earth. God and man met here and looked each other in the face. In the taking of human flesh, the Father prepared it, the Spirit formed it, and the Son assumed it. He who had an eternal generation in the bosom of the Father now had a temporal generation in time. He who had his birth in Bethlehem came to be born in the hearts of men. For what would it profit if he was born a thousand times in Bethlehem unless he was born again in man? But all those who did welcome him he empowered to become the children of God. John 1.12 now man need not hide from God as Adam did, for he can be seen through Christ's human nature. Christ did not gain one perfection more by becoming man, nor did he lose anything of what he possessed as God. There was the almightiness of God in the movement of his arm, the infinite love of God in the beatings of his human heart, and the unmeasured compassion of God to sinners in his eyes. God is now manifest in the flesh. This is what is called the Incarnation. The whole range of the divine attributes of power and goodness, justice, love, beauty, were in him. And when our divine Lord acted and spoke, God in his perfect nature became manifest to those who saw him and heard him and touched him.
as he told Philip later on, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. No man can love anything unless he can get his arms around it, and the cosmos is too big and too bulky. But once God became a babe and was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, men could say, This is Emmanuel, this is God with us. By his reaching down to frail human nature and lifting it up to the incomparable prerogative of union with himself, human nature became dignified. So real was this union that all of his acts and words, all of his agonies and tears, all of his thoughts and reasonings, resolves and emotions, while being properly human, were at the same time the acts and words, agonies and tears, thoughts and reasonings, resolves and emotions of the eternal Son of God. What men call the Incarnation is but the union of two natures, the divine and the human, in a single person, who governs both. This is not difficult to understand. For what is man but a sample, at an immeasurably lower level, of a union of two totally different substances, one the body, the other the soul, under the regency of a single human personality? What is more remote from one another than powers and capacities of flesh and spirit? Antecedent to their unity, how difficult it would be ever to conceive of a moment when body and soul would be united in a single personality. That they are so united is an experience clear to every mortal, and yet it is an experience at which man does not marvel because of its familiarity. God who brings together body and soul into one human personality, notwithstanding their difference of nature, could surely bring about the union of a human body and a human soul with his divinity under the control of his eternal person. This is what is meant by the, and the word was made flesh and came to dwell among us. The person which assumed human nature was not created, as is the case of all other persons. His person was the pre-existent word or logos. His human nature, on the other hand, was derived from the miraculous conception by Mary, in which the divine overshadowing of the spirit and the human fiat, or the consent of a woman, were most beautifully blended. This is the beginning of a new humanity out of the material of the fallen race. When the word became flesh, it did not mean that any change took place in the divine word. The word of God proceeding forth did not leave the Father's side. What happened was not so much the conversion of the Godhead into flesh as the taking of a manhood into God. There was continuity with the fallen race of man through the manhood taken from Mary. There is discontinuity through the fact that the person of Christ is the pre-existent Logos. Christ thus literally becomes the second Adam, the man through whom the human race starts all over. His teaching centered on the incorporation of human natures to him, after the manner in which the human nature that he took from Mary was united to the eternal word. It is hard for a human being to understand the humility that was involved in the word becoming flesh. Imagine, if it were possible, a human person divesting himself of his body and then sending his soul into the body of a serpent. A double humiliation would follow. First, accepting the limitations of a serpentine organism, knowing all the while his mind was superior and that fangs could not adequately articulate thoughts no serpent ever possessed. The second humiliation would be to be forced as a result of this emptying of self to live in the companionship of serpents. But all this is nothing compared to the emptying of God, by which he took on the form of man and accepted the limitations of humanity, such as hunger and persecution. Not trivial either was it for the wisdom of God to condemn himself to association with poor fishermen who knew so little. But this humiliation which began in Bethlehem when he was conceived in the Virgin Mary was only the first of many to counteract the pride of man until the final humiliation of death on the cross. If there were no cross, there would have been no crib. If there had been no nails, there would have been no straw. But he could not teach the lesson of the cross as payment for sin. He had to take it. God the Father did not spare his son, so much did he love mankind. That was the secret wrapped in the swaddling bands.